0: We're ready. Let's kneel for a prayer and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would be here as our teacher, that you would teach us how to think well, that we can come to the truth. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was a high school senior, um, I began to test these Bible statements made by Solomon. You remember what he said. He said that there is a safety in a multitude of counselors. That's not quite a direct quote, but it's the way it stuck in my head. But let's go ahead and look at the direct quotes. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11. And looking at verse 14, oh, That scared me. Hmm. Proverbs 11 and verse 14, it says, Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Now turn forward about eight pages to chapter 24. Chapter 24 and verse 6. For by wise counsel, you can see there where it says make war, Mm -hmm. and in multitude of counselors there is safety. This was the idea that I was taught, so I thought that if I wanted to know where I should go to college, I would just ask a variety of people, Mm -hmm. and in a multitude of counselors there would be safety. What I found was that in a multitude of counselors, there was a multitude of (laughs) counsels. And I want to help you understand what I learned in the process of working through that. The Bible never said that in a multitude of opinions, there is safety. There is a difference between an opinionator and a counselor. An opinionator, whether the word exists or not outside of my speech, is someone who will tell you what his or her opinion is. A counselor is someone who has access to data, either life experience and or inspired information, that can share with you because you did not have access to the same data, either life experience or inspired information. And when I come to you as a counselor, I'm not really asking you what college I should go to. I'm asking you why you think I should go to the schools you think I should go to. That is, what I want from you is your data, not your conclusion. This is such an important idea and it's fundamental to what we're talking about here. In the judgment, I am going to answer before King Jesus for my own decisions, and it will never do in the judgment for me to say that I did what you thought I should. Yeah, I'm gonna say this again. Both when I read Bible commentaries, when I'm getting counsel, when I'm asking advice, what I'm looking for is the data. I don't want to know your conclusion. Maybe I do, just as a curiosity. It's interesting to me to know what your conclusion is, but that's just a curious thing. The way you got to your conclusion was you had data, you thought it through, and you came to a conclusion. What I want to do is get your data and add it to my data, the inspiration you're aware of, and add it to the inspiration I'm aware of, and I need to think it through my Self, because I'm going to answer for my own self in the judgment. The first point in today's lecture is that making an opinion is different than giving counsel. And that if you want safety, find a multitude of people who have life experience and a knowledge of inspiration. And between them, you'll get enough data. And the data will not point in as many directions as their opinions will. And then, yeah, you'll have something going. There's an article at BibleDoc.org, a website called How to Know God's Will for Your Life, that I think if that's a very interesting topic for you, you'd love to read the article. That's BibleDoc.org. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 21. Acts 21, 36, when you read it, makes you feel like you're in the end of one of the Gospels. But it's just not there. Acts 21, verse 36. For the multitude of the people followed after crying, away with him. It's Paul that they're saying away with. I hope when you look at the verse, you can just see the very obvious thing, that there's not safety in a multitude of opinions. What was the multitude of opinion? And uh, you can find that same thing repeated in a number of places in Scripture. In fact, the wise man said simply, do not follow a multitude to do evil. That being said, let's move to point two. Thinking versus reacting. If point one was thinking versus opining, that is learning how to evaluate data instead of just concluding or taking someone else's conclusion. The second part is thinking versus reacting, and I'll illustrate what reacting is by a number of reactions. Many people try to arrive at the truth or to correct lifestyle by balance. That is, their spiritual life is one of avoiding extremes. And so they want to be in the middle of the road. What they don't understand is that this is reacting. And it makes it pretty easy for the devil to manipulate them. If he wants them to move a little bit to the right, he just brings into their realm a weird right-wing fanatic that makes them feel a little left of center. And if he wants to move them to the left, he just brings in such a wild, liberal person that they feel like they're a little bit right. And this business of trying to stay in the middle is a reactionary way of thinking. It really isn't data-based. That has nothing to do with the word database, mind you. OK, not, nothing to do. But we want to be thinking. Amy doesn't have to listen to me, Eric. I am just not on that level yet. <laughs> um, I mean, of course, you are the parent and I'm not, so I, 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 all right. Um, let me say this thought again. Reactionary thinking includes this business of trying to be balanced. And in trying to be balanced, what you're really doing is reacting to whatever atmosphere you're in. So in California, reactionary balance will put you quite a bit further left than that very same type of thinking will put you if you're in Connecticut, quite a bit. But neither one is based on simply what God says. And that's what you want your real life to be based on. It's what God says, which is much easier to, to read than people. Another type of reaction, you might call it truth by attraction. Try to arriving at the truth by knowing someone who is such a spiritual man. Let me think of some of the heroes of the faith right now. Maybe Stephen Bohr. He's spoken here at Western Youth Conference before. And that rhymes, Bohr and before, it rhymes. Uh, I know some people that just think that he is the super coolest preacher. And for all I know, they're right, because I've never heard him speak except for here. Some people really like Mark Finley, and others really like Doug Batchelor. And, and uh, I'm not going to tell you who I really like, because it's not relevant to this kind of talk. But this idea of arriving at truth by attraction is not a safe plan. Do you remember what the Bible says? Cursed is the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. When I say it's not safe to follow a man this way, I'm not saying anything negative about the man. I'm not. It's not safe for you to follow me that way, and I'm not saying anything negative about me. I could say something negative about me, but I'm not going to do that. But the Bible, when it says, Cursed is the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm, is speaking about a very general and generic thing. The problem is that if at some point in my life I begin to cherish a sin, do you remember we talked at the very beginning of the first lecture here about the connection between error and, like, falsehood and sin or false understanding and sin? If I begin to cherish a sin, it might not show up on my outside at all. Jesus said about the Pharisees that outwardly you appear righteous unto men. I think from when I read that and some other things I've read that the Pharisees were probably fairly charismatic, warm, nice, polite people generally. And it was only when you caught them at the wrong time on the wrong issue that their harshness would show up. Being around Jesus tend to bring out the worst in them. But... uh so, I, let me use the name of a fake preacher so I don't have to like illustrate this by predicting the fall of someone else. Suppose that there is a super godly man you know, Joe Blow. Joe Blow is your favorite preacher. But if your opinion of things is what it is, because when Joe Blow says it, you believe what Joe Blow says, you have just cursed Joe Blow. What I mean is... The devil sees your devotion, and he knows now there's no need to have demons both on you and Joe's case. He can just take your demons and just put them straight on Joe. I don't have any insights in how the devil works, so you can't take this too seriously what I'm saying, but I have read it plainly in Owen White's writings that the devil watches for this kind of relationship. He watches to see who people rely on, and then he bends all his powers to try to overthrow them. And the net effect of this is that people who have been very useful in God's cause often have a higher incidence of being (coughs) overthrown than the average person. I teach Adventist history, and one of the strangest things is that when you go to the year 1888, and you look there at the people that were on God's side of the issue and were opposing God's side of the issue... On God's side were Dr. Kellogg, A.T. Jones, Brother Wagner, and a few others. And on Satan's side were George Butler, A.G. Daniels, Uriah Smith, and a few others. Fast forward only 13 years. And all six of those positions are reversed. Isn't that something? And I can just see back there people who had their favorite preachers that would reject the 1888 message because Uriah Smith was their favorite preacher. But then they would read what Ellen White said about Jones and he'd become their favorite preacher. And then they end up rejecting Ellen White total because A.T. Jones did. It never would work. But if someone would learn how to think, instead of being reactionary in their thinking, they could have followed, they could have been on both sides, the right side of the issue at both periods. That's what we're aiming for, not to have a reactionary religion. Then there is what you might call the truth by repulsion. I'm speaking here about false ways that people think, but they don't really aren't really thinking well. That has to do when Satan brings a weird, strange person into your life and then has them tell you the truth. It's a common trick of the devil. I've seen him do it. I've seen him do it in families. I'm thinking right now about a man I know who he, I'll just call it, raped his own daughter year after year after year until she was 17 years old. But he was teaching conservative spiritual values to her and to other people. Do you know the devil's plan for deceiving that girl? In her mind, it's gonna be very hard to disassociate the truth that her dad said from the wickedness her dad was. I don't think you're going to have quite her tragedy, but you could follow the very same, be a victim of the same kind of dislogic. That is, just because someone is wicked or weird doesn't mean that everything they say is false. The Pope himself often says true things. I've seen someone who was anti-Trinitarian using as one of their arguments the fact that the Catholic Church says that their teaching about the Godhead is the foundation of everything they teach. That's reactionary. It doesn't mean anything. If the Catholic Church says that they base everything that they teach upon the fact that Jesus was divine, it doesn't mean anything. I can't conclude truth on the basis of how good or weird or wicked someone is that teaches it. Does this make simple sense to you what I'm saying? Which is all the reason why we're going to have to study for ourselves. There are some that try to arrive at the right position in life, and they would never word it this way, but I'm going to call it truth by revenge. They, would, they don't think about it this way. But what happens is Someone tries to force them to do right and they react to the force by doing wrong. Think it through, that trick of the devil. It's a revenge that is entirely misdirected. Why will you be mean to the Lord Jesus just because someone that didn't pay any attention to what he had to say was mean to you? If the Bible hasn't authorized anyone to, be, to use compulsion, then why will you take revenge on the Bible when someone does? It would be as if I hit you and out of revenge you hit your mother. It just doesn't make any sense at all. But it's very common of the devil to try to lead youth to go the wrong way by pushing them the right way with a lot of force. And I'm not really trying to lecture anyone about how to encourage youth to go the right way, but maybe you could gather something from this lecture on this point, but that's not really my topic. What I'm saying is if you are the one that's being pushed, you're gonna have to do some work to think well because you don't want to be a reactor, you want to be a thinker and your gut Your gut inclination to react to that force or compulsion makes it less likely that you will arrive on the truth than if you did otherwise. A much more common thing uh, for adults, you might call it truth by expert opinion. That is, I believe it because the foremost authority on the topic says so, let me tell you a famous example of this that happened here in California. It was a man, oh, his name has just escaped me, and when you know he 's dead already um, he really ha- he helped write a large part of the commentary series, the South Thomas Bible commentary, including the part on Daniel Yes, thank you yeah he 's the one and uh when he was writing the part on Daniel, this is his own testimony that he's written out, he had a hard time finding internal justification in the passage for the way we interpret Daniel eight fourteen. And so he wrote to the presidents and the head of the theology departments, he says, in each one of our colleges. And he asked them, if they could defend on an exegetical basis our understanding of Daniel 8.14. And if we can believe what he says, they wrote back and said they couldn't. And that for him was the beginning of a journey that led him to write a paper called something like this, the Investigative Judgment, Asset or Liability. But you might be able to guess what his conclusion was. It was liability. What was one fault in our brother's thinking? It was reactionary. It was assuming that those with expert opinion are closer to the truth than others. When the Bible said in Daniel 12, 10, that none of the wicked will understand. It doesn't matter how long a wicked man studies. He's not going to understand. Of course, it doesn't mean he's not going to learn anything or they won't understand the languages or won't be fluent in them. But something isn't going to connect on the truths that are most relevant uh, according to the, yeah, Daniel 12.10, you can check on that. Expert, a real hollow point in this expert opinion thing, we're going to look what the Bible says about it in a minute, but a hollow point right off is that anyone who knows much about expert opinion knows that experts disagree with each other It makes me feel kind of funny when I find someone with a funny idea and as part of their baggage of proving it, they say, and -and so-and-so with a PhD from so-and-so or so-and-so place also believes this way. As if, if someone intelligent believes it, it must be so. When anyone who knows anything about this business knows that PhDs are just people with associates that kept studying for a long time. And they disagree with each other, just like we disagree with each other. Yeah, so you can find it's just a very silly thing. This this reactionary way of concluding by expert opinion. Another way people get there, you might call it truth by sentiment. Uh, Malachi talks about this idea when he talks about people who say, (coughs) "Where is the God of judgment?" Today they say it this way, that God is too kind to, and then I was listening to one man who was speaking in Florida. I've written a paper about him that names him and he didn't like it at all and he called me about it and wanted me to withdraw the paper, but I never did withdraw it because he didn't withdraw his public teaching on it. And, uh, but anyway, what he was teaching, this man, in short was truth by sentiment He would maybe say something like this. I'm not going to say his name because I'm not quoting him and I won't get it right. So it's better that you're not. Yeah, that way I'm not going to misquote him. Right. So I'll just say some unknown person would reason like this. Would you suppose that your son disobeys? Are you going to torture him for a day? Would you torture him for a week if your son disobeys you? How about for a month? Would you put him to the torture for a month if he really disobeyed you badly? What this man was saying is the idea that God is gonna torture people in the lake of fire is obviously not true because God is a God of love. Well, let me tell you the problem with this idea. I was listening to this beautiful music all all morning. It was just a nice addendum to what we were doing here. Um, This is truth by sentiment. It's not based on what God says, but it's based on what I think God is like. The problem with it is I might not be accurate in what I think God is like, so my sentiment could perchance lead me astray. Yeah, anyway, truth by sentiment never really got people well. Then there is truth by skepticism. We talked about that a couple lectures ago about Peter Abelard. Uh, skepticism, I tried to give it proper credit. I think it's, a, it's useful in the scientific realm. When you're trying to figure out what kind of cancer therapies work, a healthy dose of skepticism will save you perhaps A lot of wasted money, energy, and time. Would you agree with me, Brother Nelson? Uh, I had a cancer patient living with me for a while, and you would be amazed at how many ideas came her direction. I tried to shield her from it and had them come to me first. If she had taken every piece of advice that was given her, she would not have needed cancer to kill her. That was a funny thing I said. I don't think most of these things would have killed her. But I mean, a healthy dose of skepticism is worthwhile in this planet where the Bible says, let God be true and every man a a liar. The Bible has not given us any reason to expect that there isn't a lot of falsehood floating around there. When you read objections against Ellen White on the internet, I recommend having a healthy dose of skepticism. But skepticism, when it demands proof, is not safe for you. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Suppose you live in 1850 and someone tells you that smoking is bad for your health. Do you know, even in 1850, there is some evidence that that's true? There's evidence that people that smoke cough more than people that don't. And if you did some studies, you would find that people that uh, smoke, that they're not living as long as people that don't, and there are people that suspect that smoking is bad for you, but there are also professionals, expert opinions back there that think smoking is probably good for coughs and tends to reduce them. And in fact, people, some doctors are prescribing nicotine. uh, I mean, they're not nicotine, but smoking. If you demanded proof in 1850, you would not be able to find it. Would that prevent the cigarettes from killing you? The lack of proof does not change the facts. And to me, this illustrates a lot of things today. For example, on the issue of music. I think that I am not capable of proving to you that much of the soft contemporary music is bad for you. But I think I can show you the evidence that leads me to avoid it. And I think that in your own heart that you don't demand proof when you think that the danger is high. For example, when you're in the airport here in Sacramento, if an alarm goes off and a voice says, there is a bomb threat, please proceed quickly to an exit. Even though you know that only one in a very small number of bomb threats are legitimate, Are you going to stand there and say, forget it. There's probably no bomb. Where's the proof? Or are you going to go? Why are you going to walk out even though you know there probably isn't a bomb? It's because there might be one, right? And because your life is very valuable, and because of the value of your life, you're not willing to take a sensible risk unless there is a very good reason? I'm trying to illustrate for you why, when there is an eternal life, you ought to be willing to take stands and to move forward based on the weight of evidence, even when you can't find proof. Because if there's good evidence that the Bible is true, and the Bible indicates that there's a life and death involved to demand proof, is really just being very, I don't know, what's the right word for a man who stands in the airport and doesn't go outside? Yeah, whatever word you want to choose for that kind of thinking, he might consider himself to just be a healthy skeptic, but his skepticism is not helping him as much as he thinks it is to arrive at the truth. It's merely showing how little he values his own life. This really isn't preaching right now because we haven't looked at the Bible hardly at all, but we're almost done with the list, then we'll look at the Bible. Truth by ratio. I heard someone preach on this last week, and I corrected him as soon as I could get him privately aside. He preached that the majority is always wrong. This was his way of proving that uh, his position on a certain thing was right. Right. Because it was the minority position. Do you see that this is reactionary thinking? Listen, that would have put you with Lucifer if you did it long ago. Right? What percent of the angels went the wrong way? It was one third. Granted, in this world, the majority of the whole world are going to go the wrong way. That's true. But as soon as you limit your field, it might not be true. For example, it might be the majority of the world, but is it the majority of the church? Well, maybe it is the majority of the church. If it's more the majority of the church, is it the majority of your local congregation? Well, maybe or maybe not. But if it is, is it the majority of uh, you and your five Bible study friends? Well, maybe or maybe not, but if it is, is it the majority of you and your best friend? Do you see what I'm saying by this majority? Ratio is not a way to get at truth. You're going to have to, I think you understand this idea. And yeah, I know the devil's used that many times, that a person will come that's preaching some truths plus some weird fanatical ideas, and the fact that the majority oppose it the devil urges as evidence that it must be yeah it's a very it's a hollow thing. Okay, now let's look at the Bible. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke 18:11. Luke 18:11. We want to see someone who tried to arrive at right living by balance. Luke 18:11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Do you see that the Pharisee has a reactionary religion? He is trying to define the right position by contrasting it with the wrong position Of course, it's not his main problem. His main problem had to do with how he understood righteousness. But I'm trying to illustrate something else. And this would be my illustration of someone who tries to arrive at right by distancing himself from what he knows is wrong. But Jesus said about Pharisees, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Some of these ideas don't need an illustration because you can just see them, but I'm going to try to illustrate them all. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 and verse 28. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and... Iniquity. Jesus is the one who can say the second thing. I shouldn't say it, and you shouldn't say it. Because someone has a moral fall doesn't prove that inwardly that they're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You know, the Adventist church right now is having a hard time because of the fall of two significant men. Moral falls. But I think that there's some evidence that at least one of them isn't a hypocrite. That, And I don't know anything about the other, so it might be the case in both. A moral fall is evidence of a great weakness, and it's a terrible thing, and really it does show that we can't put any more weight or responsibility on that person. This is hard for some people to buy, but it's true. If you get into real fanaticism, for example, and then you get out of it, We should never put you as a teacher of the people. Even though you're out, you've shown that your judgment is not reliable. In this case, shown that your moral uh, position is not reliable. It doesn't mean that you will be a fanatic again or that you're going to fall again, but it means the church has to act statistically. And it should not take such a risk as to risk the well-being of those under its charge under you. And if you are sensible and humble, you will accept that responsibility and recognize that you are no longer fit for these kind of positions. That's a tough one to swallow. Did we read the verse or not? Yeah, we did, that's right. You appear outwardly righteous unto man. This is why truth by attraction is not sensible. It's because, it's really true on both sides, not only do wicked men sometimes look right, but sometimes righteous men look so wrong. I'm thinking right now of James White and Martin Luther, who when sometimes they were opposing error, seemed, and even Moses, you remember Moses made them drink the gold? Yeah, yeah. These men, sometimes in opposing error, seemed to go a bit far. And Ellen White describes how people thought Moses had a very mean spirit. And they liked Aaron much better. Thought he had more social grace. But God excused Moses' actions because of his zeal for his glory. And uh, that's why this truth by attraction thing and truth by repulsion, neither one works. We might be repulsed from those that are right and attracted to those that are wrong. We're really going to have to go to truth by what God says. It's the only thing that's reliable in anything we've talked about so far. Truth by what God says is it. On the truth by repulsion, I had two passages here. One was Acts 2.15, where they thought that the apostles were drunk. And the other was Luke 15, where they accused Jesus of being a drunkard. Do you know what they really didn't like about Jesus in Luke 15? Is that he ate with sinners. And for them, truth by repulsion, that is their reactionary way of arriving at truth, was if a man does this, he can't be right. But if they had gone to what the Bible says, they would have been thinking in a more sensible way and it would have got them further along. That almost deserves a... uh, I don't know the right word. Almost, I should say, more than that. Because can we evaluate people on the basis of their fruits... It's kind of a funny thing. If I see you in open sin, I can conclude that you are not a reliable teacher. And if I see you openly opposing the truth for this time, I can conclude that there's something that's not working well inside of you. But neither of those conclusions helps me know what is true. They only help me know who's not reliable. And how do I arrive at what is true? That's right here. Micah 6, verse 3. Micah 6. Zephaniah, Haggai, nope, it'd be before that. Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There we go. When I was in elementary school, they had me memorize the books of the Bible and I got a Bible as a reward for that. It's one of the most useful things anyone ever did for me as a young person and um, I just recommend that you make young people do that. Micah, chapter 6 and verse 3. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? testify against me. I'm speaking here about truth by revenge. God doesn't say, what have my people done wrong to you? What have the pastors done wrong to you? What have, what has life done wrong to you? When we take revenge on God by resisting him, based on what others have done, whether it be forceful teachers or parents or people trying to share with us, our reactionary way of thinking blinds us to the data that alone could help us know what's true. It's often true that very obnoxious people find an outlet by trying to compel others to accept the truth. This is why people don't like Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they've been trained how to be moderately obnoxious. And uh, by that method that they use, many people conclude that Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. But they aren't thinking well. And when later in life you earnestly plead with them to accept the truth, they may conclude that you're wrong too on the same basis. But what does the Lord Jesus say? He says, what have I done to you? Where have I wearied you? The truth is he has done all things well and there's no good reason for us not to follow him. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17, Malachi 2 and verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or when you say, where is the God of judgment? This is truth by sentimentality. It is the idea, and I've heard this hundreds of times, I'm sure you've heard it, where someone has died and someone says he was a good man. Though there is no evidence that he was conscientious. Or someone asks a question that is on this line of how can God condemn someone who is as good as that person? I suppose if we could go back in time to the beginning of the rebellion of Lucifer, that you would find him at the beginning of his rebellion to be a very nice guy. It takes a while for sin to corrupt the character. It takes a while for it to turn selflessness into selfishness. And the truth is that at the beginning, there even was a time when Satan bowed down with the other worshipers and his heart thrilled with love for God. You ever ever read what I'm talking about? It happened to Lucifer, but he wasn't a good person. He wasn't. There was corruption that you could not see, and it's because you couldn't see it that it was so dangerous. Yeah. Truth by sentiment, by figuring that God will not destroy or will not judge, is just, it's missing the data that shows why God has to destroy even that evil that never showed up, so that those who are faithful can live uh, everlasting, sinless existence. 1 Samuel 16. Such an interesting story. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 16. This is the story of the rebellion of Absalom and uh, that story, you could preach on it for a long time. In fact, it takes up a big part of the Bible. I don't know if you remember that, but it's chapters long. I'm not talking about just the rebellion, but I mean from the Bathsheba experience all the way to the resolution with the death of so many of David's children. Uh, but here, Second Samuel 16, and we're looking at Verse 23. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. What an interesting man, what an interesting verse. Ahithophel was a wise counselor. It's as if he was connected did Ahithophel go the right direction in this issue? He went the wrong direction. I'd like you to see something interesting. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the Archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now this is interesting. Because the truth is, Ahithophel's counsel was better in a worldly sense. That is, there was more worldly wisdom in it. And Hushai was just trying to deceive them, really. He wasn't even trying to give them good counsel. But did Hushai succeed in deceiving them? He did. Now listen to what it says. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Good there doesn't mean holy, because it was very wicked what Ahithophel suggested. The good counsel of Ahithophel... To the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. The Bible talks about how God, I think I even have a verse for this. Maybe I should have us look at it before I draw my conclusion. Uh, oh, I must have put it where I can't see it. But uh, this is what it says. It's in Isaiah, that God is intending to, uh, to, I'm forgetting the right words, and I hate paraphrasing the Bible, so I'll just majorly summarize it. It's in God's intention to make the wisdom of the world look foolish. It's almost like what you see in 1 Corinthians 1. It's it's a very similar idea. Remember what it says there, that the world by wisdom knew not God, and this was God's intention? God's intention is, is to humble us when we've depended on the experts by making the experts act foolishly. And what's so interesting in this story is that Absalom had good expert advice and didn't believe it because God did not intend to bless Absalom with good expert understanding. I guess I can learn from this passage how little weight to put on expert advice. First of all, some experts are devious. Wasn't Hushai an expert also? Mm -hmm. Some experts are devious and others are wicked and I might be uh, in line for delusion. I'm thinking of 2 Thessalonians 2, that God sends them strong delusion that they might have a lie and they might believe a lie because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. What's it say? I think, what I'm thinking of is when it says it is written, is the ones it's, it's quoting from, but exactly that same idea. That's it. God's intention is to make those who are very wise end up not being very wise looking at all. John 20, 25. This is a good example of where you end up if you want to get at truth by proof. That sounds like truth for youth, but it shouldn't be associated with it. John 20, verse 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, you know, the story ends up okay for Thomas. I'm happy for that. Because God is very kind to people who don't think well. I've seen people who demand proof. Sometimes God has given them more than I thought he would. I've seen people who who are very sentimental in the way they think. Sometimes God has given them more sentimental reason than I would imagine he would. Sometimes people who have relied upon experts, God has brought them excellent expert information. I mean, God is kind to people, but our chance of arriving at truth is much better if we learn the right way to do it. In the case of Thomas, Jesus said, go ahead and thrust in your hand and feel my, the palm of my hand And he said, blessed are you, excuse me, not blessed are you, blessed are those that believe who don't see. That is Jesus saying that this idea of demanding proof isn't a blessed idea. It's not safe. And the devil may convince you that even what is overwhelming evidence is not even evidence at all. I'm thinking right now of the creation evolution debate. I think I have seen enough evidence to say that it doesn't require faith for me to believe in creation. The evidence is compelling. But I can easily imagine a student who hasn't been exposed to what I've been exposed to not understanding a lot of things, feeling like that there's no proof at all, and a lot of evidence on the other side. Yeah, this, you understand. One more passage then we'll review and close. Look at Second Chronicles 29 and verse 36. It's a very encouraging passage when I think about the future of the Adventist church. Second Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 36. And Hezekiah rejoiced and all the people that God had prepared the people For the thing was done suddenly. Do you see the beauty in the passage? This was a revival under Hezekiah. But if it really began under Hezekiah, by Hezekiah, it would have been taken a long time to perfect the, the church and to change the nation. But why was it that the revival was able to go forth suddenly? What's it say in the passage? Hadn't God been working already? God had prepared the people. When I look at the Reformation, I see evidence. For example, how is this for fascinating? Tyndale and Martin Luther and Erich Zwingli were born within three weeks of each other. Two of them on the same day and the other one two and a half weeks later. And ended up teaching the same truth based on the same Greek New Testament before they had had interaction with each other. What does it tell you? That God doesn't require as much time to fix a problem as you might think. That if he wants to start a major revival yesterday, and he starts it right here on Weimar's campus... It's not like it has to start here and spread over the world. You might find out it has started in the same time in 5,000 other places. God can prepare the people and the thing can be done suddenly. Do you see the evidence in the end of that chapter? It happened in the time of Hezekiah. It can happen in our time. And to me it's good evidence that you shouldn't have the reactionary thinking that the majority is always wrong. Because there can come a time when God has prepared the people and in the right venue, in the right place, the majority could even do the right thing. And that's what happens right here in this story. So it's much easier to summarize this whole lecture than it is to say it. The summary of the whole thing is the word of God is the only sure source of truth. It's the only thing. It's the only reliable thing. And if I want to learn how to think well... What I'm going to have to do is gather as much data as I can from inspired sources, and if it has to do with how to live, I might include life experience from you. You might tell me something about how to cook, and I won't find anything about it in the Bible. Is that a legitimate source of truth, life experience? It is, but I want to be sure that my thinking is not reactionary, because as soon as my thinking is reactionary instead of data-based, It becomes easy for the devil to manipulate me by bringing in a mean person that tells me the truth or a corrupt man that tells me a lie but looks righteous by, well, do I need to go through the whole list again? The devil has so many tricks. I'm glad we don't have to memorize all the tricks to be stable. Right? All we have to learn is that there's only one reliable Source, And if we learn what the right source is, we'll begin to see our way through the fog of sentimental conclusions and attraction conclusions, repulsion conclusions, whether people are demanding proof when they have plenty of evidence, whether they're going by something as shallow as a ratio, we can just easily reveal to them that your source of authority isn't what you think. Your opinion isn't based on anything solid. And it needs to be if it's going to be reliable in the end. Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for giving us the Holy Bible. I'm sorry that we have been so easy, easily deceived and duped and misled. And I ask that you would teach us how to take our our reliance off of expert men and holy men and favorite men and, and to put it on something that really has reliability. Your word. Prepare us now for the coming blessings of this weekend. And I ask for your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.